Now let us open our Bibles, if we may please, to this ninth chapter of Romans, which was read for our scripture. And I'd like to have you notice in the very opening, the apostle Paul says in verse 5, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. And I want to take just the phrase there, whose are the fathers, whose are the fathers. And when you turn down just a little further in verse 10, we have the reference, even our father Isaac. Of course, these last few days, as we've all been thinking about Israeli and the victories that was won there in the Middle East, and our hearts have been deeply stirred, and I've been spending considerable time studying these passages and these prophecies. But when Paul came at this point to commend and to discuss the position of the Christian in relationship to the uh, children of Israel. He points out that he himself is a kinsman according to the flesh. He points out that uh, these who are Israelites, verse 4, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, who are the fathers? He said they have a tremendous inheritance, a tremendous heritage. But then he proceeds to go on in the remainder of the passage and point out that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He makes a distinction between those who have been uh, become the children of God by faith and those who, though they are children of Israel according to the flesh, they're not the children of God because they have not received Christ by faith. But the point that I'd like to develop for you just now is that whose are the fathers? Whose are the fathers? And in view of our own circumstances here in the United States, in our struggles with the apostasy, and our own immediate situation with the United Presbyterian Church out of which we all came, having laid aside the ordination vows to which we have all subscribed as officers. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? That is no more. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith as containing the system of doctrine? That is no more. And in view of the laying aside of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the complete elimination of the larger catechism, and the inclusion of the Westminster Confession and the Shorter Catechism in a, what they call a, a book of confessions which has no binding force on the church, it's no basis for any form of discipline to preserve the, protect the purity of the church. It's just a nice historical catalog which you can read and get some inspiration out of it if you want to, but that's entirely up to you. We have seen a, a tremendous revolution 
So much so that we can say that that church is dead and out of it they're taking and developing another one. And our General Synod had its meeting in Portland, Oregon, meeting concurrently with the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church, which adopted the new confession. And we uh, prepared and signed this Portland Covenant, which we are going to have reproduced and we'll have it printed and signed and mounted in all our Bible Presbyterian churches because it is a historic moment when the Bible Presbyterian movement arises out of its struggle to be the spiritual and continuing successor of this great Presbyterian church in this country. And our synod and our churches and our people have stood to this issue through the years, and now we've come to the final moment when a great body has turned aside and we can speak of the death of a church. Now this symbolic <clears throat> trip across the country that three of our pastors are making is nearing its end. And what they did and what we all did in Portland with the unanimous backing of our synod was to get this Cadillac black hearse and put a sign on it, the death of a church, take several hundred copies or several thousand copies of my book, The Death of a Church, and to start across the United States to come back to Philadelphia where 179 years ago the General Assembly was organized and they took this great confession of faith and made it the standards of the church. And after 179 years, they've laid it aside, they've changed, and this uh, hearse of ours has been coming across this country with a tremendous uh, attraction and response. Uh, last evening, I talked to Bob Dickerson, who called me from Zanesville, Ohio, and he was just full of enthusiasm. He says, Mr. McIntyre, we've never seen anything like it. He says, everywhere we go, he says, we're the immediate object of questions and curiosity. What is it? I think he said they were on three television stations in Indianapolis. They were on the television in Columbus. All they have to do is to stop. They come out, they take their pictures, they get their story, and they get this question that something has happened and is happening in the church. And this is what we want to get the American people to see, and this is what we're trying to get across to the public at the present moment, that it is a revolution. It is the death of a church and its great commitment to our reform standards and to our great and glorious system of revealed truth, which we have from the Holy Scripture. So this coming week, we're going to be thinking of these matters, and in view of that, I thought it would be most appropriate, at least on the Sunday morning, to go back and speak about the fathers. The fathers. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, in... Uh, his denunciation of the religious leaders of his day who had perverted and turned the people away from the testimony of Moses. In the 23rd chapter of Matthew, verse 29, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which kill the prophets. My, what an accusation for Jesus Christ to make. You'll talk about your heritage and you'll build the tombs of the prophets and you'll do all these things, but if you'd lived back there in the days when those prophets were alive, you would have been among that company that killed the prophets. 
And you're not the children of the prophets, you're the children of those who sought to kill and destroy the prophets. I think it is most significant right now in our own country that we have a tendency everywhere. We're building a big independence mall, spending millions of dollars, and we just have a report that up in Bucks County they're spending millions of dollars for some of these historical settings up in there, and they're going to go back and even recreate the kind of pottery they made up there a hundred years ago, and we're, we're, we're so full of all this visitation to historical points and historical places, and people are going there on tourist trips. But uh, the question is, do we as a nation and do we as a people still embrace the ideals of freedom, and are we willing to suffer for them like our forefathers did? That is the question. As a matter of fact, we're getting so twisted around in the propaganda that's being given to us that some of us are being asked to believe that what those who have departed from our ideals and principles now stand for are what our fathers stood for. So anyway, you look at it, you get a complete twist around about, and we're asked now to go on with this tremendous emphasis upon building the tombs of the prophets, but we're not standing for the things that the prophets stood for in the day when they were martyred and when they suffered and died for the great principles of liberty, and in the case of the churches, the great ideals of our holy faith. One thing, beloved, may be said, and I must say it, and we all must say it, those of us who are a part of this great separatist movement, those of us who are seeking to reach the people of our day that we may preserve the church and preserve the faith, one thing, beloved, that we are not accused of, we are accused of most anything and everything under heaven. We really are. All the different things that we're being accused of, as you all know. But nobody, so far as I know, has come around yet and accused Dr. McIntyre of not believing the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the most amazing thing. Nobody's come around and accused Dr. McIntyre of not believing the Bible to be the Word of God. I don't get that accusation. We get many others, but this one, for some reason or other, they don't raise. Because you people and everybody that listens to us across this country knows that Dr. McIntyre has the Bible, he's expounding it, and he's calling the people back to these great ideals, and he's standing for the great confession and the catechism, and he's standing for these great concepts of the sovereignty of God in the affairs of man. And everybody sees it, and everybody knows. We don't get that kind of an accusation. Furthermore, beloved, as these issues are coming into sharp focus right now, this is a time when we can stand up and not be ashamed of the gospel. Not be ashamed of our fathers. Not be ashamed of these great things that they brought to this new world and which we are the inheritors of. There may be a multitude against us in our generation, but so far as the multitudes of past history in the struggle to preserve the faith, there are more that be for us than they that be against us. And we stand today, all of us who believe these great holy doctrines, on sacred ground, and we have some fathers that we can rejoice in. Now, beloved, I have here a little report that's just been written for the 1965 edition of what you call the Handbook of the Denominations. And the book, of course, is generally in the hands of the liberals. But what is so significant about it is that when they write these early histories and give the reports of these developments, 
they uh, report it in the way which is so favorable, of course, to us. But this document has the report concerning the development of Presbyterianism in the New World. May I read you a paragraph or two from it? Dominant in the Westminster Assembly, that's back in Great Britain, the Presbyterians soon dominated the British government. Cromwell completed the ousting of a monarch and established a commonwealth. The commonwealth crushed the monarchy, crushed, rather the commonwealth crushed, the monarchy returned, and the fires of persecution flamed against British Presbyterians who fled to America with the Puritans. An attempt to establish episcopacy in Scotland after 1662 sent many Presbyterians out of Scotland into Ireland where economic difficulties and religious inequalities drove them on to America. The Presbyterian British, and even more, the Presbyterian Scotch-Irish, became the founders of Presbyterianism in America. Beginning in 1710 and running into mid-century, from 3,000 to 6,000 Scotch-Irish came annually into the American colonies settling at first in New England and the mid middle colonies, then spreading out more widely than any other racial group ever to reach our shores. And then we go ahead with the founding of the churches, and we're told here what is probably the oldest continuing Presbyterian church in the United States was founded by the Reverend Francis McKemmy at Rehoboth, Maryland. And that's where we're going two weeks from today to his great monument. In 1683, McKemmy ranged the coast from Boston to the Carolinas, planting churches and giving them unity with one another. Six groups were united into the First Presbyterian Philadelphia in 1706. 1706, six little churches, six little Presbyterian churches, met in the first Presbytery that was ever met right here in Philadelphia, and Francis McKemmy was named the moderator, and there were three preachers present. Three preachers present, six little, six little churches, and they organized the First Presbytery. And I have here a book that has turned out to be one of the most valuable that I believe I ever purchased, but I picked it up for about 25 cents years ago when I was just rummaging through these second-hand bookstores. And it has in it the minutes, the records of the Presbyterian Church from the beginning until the organizing of the General Assembly in 1789. And just to read these minutes, it's simply a thrill and a delight. The first meeting of any Presbytery was held here in Philadelphia, and on the 27th of October, they ordained, or rather they licensed, a young man by the name of John Boyd, and he preached a sermon on John 1.12. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, beloved, if you'll go down with me to Cape May to the Cold Springs Church, which is one of the oldest, organized in 1714, this John Boyd became the pastor of the church at Cape May, or rather Cold Springs, just at that point. Now, in the next meeting of this presbytery, uh, 1707, meeting here in Philadelphia, they took action concerning their responsibility as ministers, and uh, they had here 
of their recommendations as to how they could improve the propagation of religion. Four points, or three points. One, that every minister in their respective congregations read and comment on a chapter of the Bible every Lord's day as discretion and circumstance of time, place, etc. will admit. In other words, each minister was to read from the Bible to his people, then he was to comment on that, preach that Bible, and he, as circumstances determined, would decide what chapter he would preach on. Now, that was different from the established church where they appointed all through the years all these different topics and assignments. But the Presbyterians were free in their local assemblies that the minister would arise, take the Bible, and then explain that passage of the Bible. And Presbyterianism started, ladies and gentlemen, and beloved, by expository preaching. Expository preaching so that the people would understand what was in this book. Second, that it be recommended to every minister of the Presbytery to set on foot and encourage private Christian societies, independent schools, independent colleges. And that's the way the College of New Jersey, which became the Princeton University today, was started. Independent uh, private Christian societies were encouraged immediately that the people would go out and do this activity. And third, that every minister of the Presbytery supply neighboring desolate places where a minister is wanting an opportunity for doing good offers. They were to go into these little churches, preach the Bible to them. They were to encourage the members of the churches to organize private Christian societies. And then they were to go into desolate neighboring places where opportunity afforded and there preach the gospel and bring the message of the word of God to those people. That's the way this movement started in this country. And furthermore, that's the way it's going to continue if it's going to have the blessing and the favor of God. There can be absolutely no possible substitute for the minister indoctrinating you people in the knowledge of the scriptures and then laying the burden upon the people to build, to build, to build. Let the people do the work that must be done. And then so far as the ministry is concerned, go out into a desolate place. Go over to this place where there's a need and go into that place and you start preaching the word of God. That was Francis McKimmy. And that's the way this started in this country. And I must say to you people in the midst of these dark days, right down here at Cape May, where we're going with our conferences, it was through the opening of that Delaware Bay. And you stand there at that Cape May point and look across the world, if you will. That's where Francis McKimmy came in and landed over there. There's where William Penn came in and landed at Newcastle. There's where these men came in to this new world and came with these marvelous ideals of liberty and freedom. Two weeks from today, we're going down to the McKemmy Monument. We've gotten permission to meet there and have a rally, have a meeting. Francis McKemmy and those who came with him brought the Westminster Confession with them. And they built the seven little churches that he organized down in what they call McKimmy Land on the great Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, which we still subscribe to as a Bible Presbyterian church today. <clears throat> when you read the account of the unfolding and the development of this movement here in the New World, you see how the favor and blessing of God rested upon it. 
And from 1710 to 1750, a 40-year period, there were waves of these Scotch-Irish and the British Presbyterians who came fleeing the persecutions of the old world to develop this church here in the United States. The first general synod of its spiritual forefathers met in 1729. They brought two or three presbyteries together. They brought two presbyteries together and formed what they called a, a general synod. Free in the new land with their Scottish fire and covenanter background, the Presbyterians quickly set out procuring trained ministries. Creeds and colleges have been their stock in trade from the earliest days. Trained ministry, creeds they believed, colleges that they established. William Temple Sr. organized a log college in a cabin at Nishamani, Pennsylvania. He started with three of his four sons as his first pupils. And his family school grew into the most important Presbyterian institution of higher learning in America. Out of it came the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, and a stream of revivalistic Presbyterian preachers who played leading roles in the great awakening of the early 18th century. Prominent among them were William Tennant, Jr., and his brother Gilbert, who met and liked the British revivalist George Whitfield and followed him in preaching an emotional new birth revivalism. Now, here was a tremendous revival that broke forth there in the early part of the, of the 18th century, and here was Whitfield, and here were the Tennants, that were leaders in this tremendous emotional revivalism with the emphasis upon the new birth. Presbyterians objected, some of them, to emotional revivalism. It split their church. Preachers took sides. Those with the old side opposed revivalism, while those with the new side endorsed it, claiming that less attention should be paid to college training for the ministry and more to the recruiting of regenerated common men into the pulpits. The two sides quarreled until 1757 when they reunited. They were separate for some 10 years. In, in uh, 1758, the first year of the United Synod, there were 98 ministers in the colonies, 200 congregations, and 10,000 members. One of the ablest of the new side preachers was John Witherspoon president of Princeton, founded in 1746, member of the Continental Congress and the only ministerial signer of the Declaration of Independence. Witherspoon may have been instrumental in the call of the General Synod upon the Presbyterian churches to uphold and promote the resolutions of the Continental Congress. The Scotch-Irish accepted the revolution with relish. The persecution they had experienced in England and Ulster left them as natural dissenters and solidly anti-British. Their old cry, no bishop and no king, was heard as far off as England. Horace Walpole remarked that, quote, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Uh, here in Philadelphia, we have a monument to John Witherspoon. And I went out to 
search out that monument this week, and we found it. We discovered it. And uh, we knew that they had such a monument. And I knew that it was somewhere in the Fairmount Park. So I made my way over to Fairmount Park. And uh, I had heard that it overlooked the Schuylkill River. And so we went to this section of the park on the east side of the school well, went up to the uh, police quarters there and went in. Asked the gentleman if they could tell me where Witherspoon's monument was. Witherspoon's monument, he didn't know. He shook his head. I said, it's in this park somewhere, we think. And, uh, well, he didn't know he'd have to go ask somebody else, so he went in and asked somebody else, and the second man came out, and he didn't know either, so they finally went back and got the captain. And the captain came out, and he didn't know where it was either. And this is the Fairmount Park guard over there, and I told him who I was and what we wanted with it. He said, let me get my book. So he goes back and gets a little book and comes out and says, yes, there's a monument to Witherspoon, but it's over on the other side of the river, and it's back in behind the botanical gardens, but it's over there somewhere. He says... I said, well, give me directions. And so he gave me directions. And I said, what do we have to do to have a meeting? Well, you have to get a permit. Well, where do you have to go for a permit? Well, you can stop over there at the guardhouse and see about the permit. And so I said to the gentleman, I said, thank you very much. And he says, are you McIntyre on the radio? I says, yes. He says, thank you very much. So we went over there to try to find the Witherspoon Monument. And back over there on way on the inside, overlooking the Schuylkill River, all right, but it's on the high mound above the new expressway that goes out. But you have to get in it by going to Belmont Avenue. Belmont runs from uh, City Line Avenue uh, down to Girard Avenue. And you turn off, and you can get in back in there. And, beloved, it is a magnificent monument to this great man. May I read you what's on the monument? I wrote it down. John Witherspoon, D.D., L.L.D., a lineal descendant of John Knox, born in Scotland, February 5th, 1722, ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, 1745, president of the College of New Jersey, 1767 to 1794. That's when he died. The only clergyman in the Continental Congress, a signer of the Declaration of Independence died at Princeton, November the 15th, 1794. This pedestal, a gift of the Presbyterian women of Philadelphia and vicinity. On the right side of the monument, you have inscribed only these words. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Leviticus 2010. On the back side of the monument, this statute is erected under the authority of a committee appointed by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the USA, July the 4th, 1876. And then on the right side, I guess you would call it the third side, we have this direct quotation, quote, For my own part, of publicity I have some, of reputation, some. That reputation is staked, that property is pledged on the issue of the contest. And although these gray hairs must soon descend into the sepulcher, I would infinitely rather that they descend 
thither by the hand of the executioner than desert at this crisis the sacred cause of my country. And that speech he is reported to have made in the presence of all the signers of the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776. I have here another magnificent address that he preached on May the 17th, 1776 from the pulpit of the Presbyterian Church in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, beloved, if any of you people are prone to think that as a Presbyterian your pastor is getting out of line in some of these patriotic things he's saying, I'd like to tell you John Witherspoon's on my side. I'd like to let you know that these men had ideals of righteousness and liberty. I'd like to let you see that in this great hour, and when they came to select a representative from New Jersey to go to the Continental Congress to prepare the Declaration of Independence, they elected John Witherspoon, president of Princeton College, the New Jersey College it was called at that time. And we had men who had deep Calvinistic concepts of our relationship to the deity. And furthermore, John Witherspoon is the one man who's accredited as more than any other individual with the influence later on on the Congress of the United States that prepared the Constitution of introducing these concepts of the Republican and representative type of government. Tremendous influence that these early Presbyterians had. And beloved, I believe the latter Presbyterians of our day need to have the same influence on our national life in behalf of freedom and in behalf of righteousness. Now in these minutes of this period, I want to go back to the minutes here of 1729 when they formed their first synod, at which time they deleted from the Westminster Confession of Faith the references to the King of England. The Presbyterians, as early as 1729, the revolution didn't take place, of course, until 1776. But as early as 1729, right here in Philadelphia, the Synod met, and when they united the, or rather when they formed the Synod, the, the first thing they did in adopting the Westminster Confession of Faith as the standard of that Synod was to delete the references in that Westminster Confession to the sovereign in England. They took that out. And what we now have in our Westminster Confession of Faith on the civil magistrate is what they inserted at that time, that the civil magistrate was to leave the affairs of the churches and religious opinions and decisions alone. And this marvelous concept of the freedom of the church from interference or direction from the state these ideals of separation of church and state, which ultimately became a very definite part of the Constitution of the United States, were put into the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1729. That's when it was in there. Whose are the fathers? Whose are the fathers? And beloved, this Collingswood Church and your pastor and the things that our Senate stands for and the things that we represent are in the direct lineal descent so far as faith is concerned to these things which are most precious to us this very day. And we just go back and read their minutes. 
Then when they came to organize the General Assembly in 1788, the last meeting of their synod was held. They divided their synod into four synods right quickly so they could get enough to have what they said was a General Assembly. And they authorized the meeting to be held in Philadelphia on the third Thursday in May, 1789, at 11 a.m. And that Dr. Witherspoon would preach the sermon and preside until a moderator was elected. He stood head and shoulders above all the others and when they elected the moderator to the first general assembly and adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was a continuing adoption, of course, they had had it in their synods, it was John Witherspoon who was the leader in that hour. Whose are the fathers? Whose are the fathers? Oh, beloved, the idea is that the children should not desert the faith of their fathers. The idea is that the faith doesn't change, that the revelation of God remains the same. The idea is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has power in it. And Witherspoon was among the revivalists who insisted that's going to deliver us today. And that's what we must have. And next Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, your pastor's going out there. By the way, it is interesting when you read a little more in this current history. It's most interesting to see how they make reference to us. The Bible Presbyterian movement and how we have broken away. My finger on it, you might be interested in seeing just what the direct reference is. But uh, they refer to the fact that we have separated and uh, here we are a group under the leadership of the Reverend Carl McIntyre broke away to found the Bible Presbyterian Church in continuing protest against tendencies they considered quote modernistic pacifistic and communistic both within Presbyterianism and Protestantism generally the protest widened under McIntyre in the organization of the American and International Council of Christian Churches. So we're in the history, beloved. We're in it. And we're going to stay at the heart of this great issue that has to do with answering the question, is this nation and are the churches going on in their ideals that our fathers gave us? Whose are the fathers? Or are we going to desert them while we garnish their tombs? That's the problem. Two weeks from today, we're going down to the McKemmy Monument. They tell me the place had grown up in weeds. They're getting it mowed. But some vandals have gotten in there, and he has the Bible in this right hand clutched up close to his breast. And his left hand is lifted like this, but some vandals have shot his hand off. And the hand of McKemmy is not there, just a stub hand. That's all it's and as we deal with the death of a church, and as I appeal to those of you who believe the word of God, and I appeal to you to stand with us in this great hour, I appeal to you to stand where our fathers stood. Who are the fathers? 
They're ours. They don't belong to those who've killed the church and have gone after other doctrines. And God will bless our faithful preaching of this message. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for our heritage out of Britain and out of Scotland and out of Ulster. And we thank thee that when we read this little story as it's summarized even just now, we see how in these last days thou art preserving remnants in this country and overseas. May we be faithful. And next Sunday, our Father, wilt thou use that three o'clock service in a gracious way as we stand there in that park, there by the great monument of John Witherspoon. And may the faith that this man had to fight for the Declaration of Independence, to sign it, may the faith that this great preacher had to stand in his pulpit and on May the 17th, 1776, there in Princeton, New Jersey, call the Presbyterians to support the freedom of the new world. Bless us today for Christ's sake. Amen. Now let us stand, and as we sing this closing hymn, will the teachers of the school please come forward? Hymn number 379.